Have you ever thought what it's like to be wanderers in the fourth dimension? This is the Doctor Who Podcast. And welcome to episode 322 of the Doctor Who podcast. I'm joined by Ian and Michelle. Hello. Hello. Hello, James. Hello, Ian. Hello, listeners. <laughs> I love it when I introduce you together because neither of you knows who to respond first. We just all pile in together and make a big sort of mash of it. As we usually do yes, anyway. Yes, yes, let's, let's face <laughs> it. Let's face it. So, Michelle, let's start with you. What have you been watching? Uh, what have you been listening to? You, you, you've been, um, I would say you've been the most prolific in your Doctor Who fandom over the last couple of months. Yeah, prolific in in most everything except the TV series, although I did recently rewatch um, Robot of Sherwood. Is it Robot or Robots? I just rewatched it. Well, you're the one who's recently seen it. I know, I know. Anyway, that one, <laughs> the Robin Hood one. And listen, so I'm kind of working through uh, the early part of the Capaldi range. Also, reread the, no, reread for the first time the Target novel of Dragonfire. Uh, oh. And I, I, yeah, isn't there some news about. Dragon. It, it was. It was not not related yeah, to this. Yeah, um, kind of. Well, that's the story they've chosen to show um, to celebrate the release of season twenty four on Blu ray at, at the BFI, and I think this is the first Who event they've had for what must be now nearly a year or so. Um, and again, season twenty four. I mean, you're not really spoilt for choice <laughs> in terms of uh, stories. Uh, but I mean, Dragon Fire, I've always always quite enjoyed. It's only three episodes. So it's quite short. <laughs> How's the novel? Actually, I strongly recommend the televised version over the <laughs> novel. This this is this was one of the I you know most most targets are pretty. You're pretty secure when you read a target one. They're mostly pretty good. And and this one was probably one of my least favorite, if not. Well, one of my least favorite Target novels, and I can't even remember right now who the author was. It wasn't the usual, uh, it wasn't the usual Terence Sticks. Um, but I just thought it it dragged like crazy. They tried to give backstories to minor characters that I didn't even care about, and they spent an, <laughs> they spent far more time in the ice passages than I remember on the televised show, and it was just oh my goodness, it just went on and on and on. Whereas I actually like Dragonfire. I, didn't we, Ian, do you remember, didn't we one time on the Doctor Who podcast eons ago do some, it wasn't a live stream because we weren't, wouldn't have been watching it with other people, but I think we did a commentary. The DWP did a commentary on Dragonfire where we divvied it up into the various episodes. And I remember quite enjoying that, it. That rings a bell. I mean, we've done so many things over the years that it, it's another mashed blur at this point, but uh, yeah, I think I do remember doing that. Yeah, we um, we I think that was to celebrate our two hundredth episode because, I mean, depending on how you count them, Dragonfire is the two hundredth Doctor Who story. So we decided to do commentary episodes on that story, which was uh, which was entertaining. Um, but then again, I, I think some of these stories which um, don't have a massive reputation, or they're not you know, stellar in terms of uh, the perceived wisdom of fans really work together or really work well when 
screened in public or when you do something slightly different with them. And uh, the, the BFI, I think the last screening or one of the last screenings pre-lockdown was Mind Warp, uh, which again is probably a contender for worst Doctor Who story of all time, uh, certainly in my view anyway. But, uh, you know, you've got two, three hundred Doctor Who fans all watching it together, laughing along and with it. Uh, it it's a kind of different experience. I, I've never not enjoyed the BFI screenings, no matter what the episode, even Logopolis I enjoyed. Hmm. And I, don't... I was just about to say, <laughs> even Logopolis. Um yeah, no, the, the atmosphere of it is fun. It's it's, a, it's an event. It, it, it elevates any story that you watch there. Mm. Michelle, uh, you mentioned a couple of Capaldi stories there. And uh, I, I, we haven't spoken about a single episode uh, featuring Peter Capaldi on the DWP, I think, for probably a year or so when Phil, Ian and I discussed... The pilot, I think, was it called the that pilot? Rings a bell, yeah. I think it was called the pilot. Yeah, um, I mean, how did these stories stand up to rewatching? Well, the the Sherwood episode was one of my favorite of the era, and I know that that would be a controversial opinion because it was kind of light fluff. But I am a huge Robin Hood fan, and um, I, I thought it was great. I loved the the interplay between the Doctor and Robin Hood, and especially the sort of multi layered stuff at the end about, you know, are we stories? Aren't we all stories at the end and what kind of impact that we can have? And it does have, I mean, the ending is really dumb where they shoot the golden arrow at the spaceship. But if you take out the really awful ending, um, it's a pretty delightful rob. Oh man, the, the opening sequence on the, on the log over the river with the spoon, there's a lot of really good in it. And I, I, I've always loved that one. Listen, the next one, um, I think I liked better on first watch than I did uh, hmm. this time around. It's not a bad one, uh, but it felt to me like it was trying to be more than it was. Um, whereas it it might have yeah. been best as just as kind of accepting it's the story of the week, mid-season, early in the season. Um, I felt like it was trying for more than it reached, but it's not a bad story. No, so, some of those stories uh, that, that Moffat wrote in particular... Uh, <laughs> The experience the viewer has differs significantly on rewatch. So, uh, listen, I remember being really impressed by it at the time, and I seem to recall there were some really long scenes or unusually long scenes, eight or nine minutes in in length, and and the tension is built up, it's sustained, it's quite incredible. Uh, and I seem to recall this was air or this aired around the same time as uh, Ian and I went to see Gravity at the the BFI, which is essentially an hour and a half of just sitting on the edge of your seat, not daring to breathe. But of course, if you watch it again, when you know what's going to happen, uh, so much of that experience uh, changes. And I'm not saying it gets worse or is diminished. It's just that you start noticing other things and attention doesn't have the same impact. And I think Listen is certainly one of those episodes. Blink is another you know, and and they've been you know even even heaven sense, um, and, and I always get that confused with hell bent, but I I mean the Groundhog Day parody mm, <laughs> that mm, episode, mm. E- even that one, you know, it, it doesn't have the same kind of impact. But uh, but there we go. Anyway, um, I think we've probably covered about three different eras there, and. Of course, we've got a brand new era to discuss on the DWP this episode. Christopher Eccleston returned to Doctor Who through Big Finish Productions' Ravages, the first box set 
featuring the Ninth Doctor was released, as we recalled, just over a week ago. And we're going to spend the majority of this podcast talking about that release. So if you're ready, Ian, Michelle, listeners, strap in. And for the first time on a DWP, we're going to be discussing new Christopher Reckleston stories. How about that? I'm back! I'm really back in the TARDIS! You did it, old girl! Endless possibilities and events. Future, past and everything in between. I have done the thing! Temporal thing radiating from the TARDIS like nobody's business. Doctor, I honestly don't know how this could have happened. Come on, get in! It's all right! It's all right! Don't panic! I'm not panicking! I wasn't talking to you! Centuria! Did you just fall out of the sky or something? So? Yeah. So you lied to her? I meant what I said. Doctor! If you can hear me, you better get here soon! Run for it, lads! Run! So this is the release that people have been waiting years for. Everyone was saying, will he come back on Big Finish? And for the longest, longest time... It seemed like it was just never going to happen. But then something unlocked in the last couple of years, a meeting at Gallifrey, and here we are with brand new Christopher Eccleston, which I'm finding particularly interesting because I've been doing the Nine Lives series. So I've been reviewing Chris Eccleston's era for the last well, year or two now uh, for the podcast, and then recently rewatched some of them. And so I actually have his portrayal on TV very fresh in my mind as I went into these audios. And I actually found it slightly jarring at first because I'm familiar with the entirety of the Christopher Eccleston canon in Who because there's only 13 episodes of it and we've watched them several times. So you know almost every word he's ever said and suddenly there's new words. And it it almost floored me at first to have Christopher Eccleston <laughs> saying lines that I've not heard him say before. I know that sounds silly, but it was actually really quite, quite surprising. Um but really enjoyable, and I, I really enjoyed having that character of the Doctor back in again, because so the Nine Lives has recently reminded me just how good a Doctor he was, and I wouldn't say it immediately came back. I think at the very beginning, it felt slightly stilted to me, and it felt like he mm. hadn't quite got his finger on the character, and in, you could almost feel him reading the, the script. But then as the story went on, you could feel him getting into the role and the, sort of the exuberance and the, the natural flow coming through. And it was, yeah, it was that great character that we really enjoyed on the TV. I, I know exactly what you mean about uh, that acclimatization process. And I couldn't put my finger on it either. I couldn't figure out whether it was a case of, we, you know, as you very clearly and very well articulated, um, we are hearing new dialogue from the Ninth Doctor or whether it's the case that actually we're not used to this character on audio uh, and therefore that felt a bit a bit weird and the only real comparison I've got is when I heard Paul McGann and Tom Baker um, return to the fold and and I would say I found their debut stories much easier to get into so I would suggest that actually this is something script related uh, but like you say within the first 10-15 minutes or so you're into the story, you're into the way it's being told, which pr- certainly initially is, is essentially a two-handed conversation, um, you know, the, the Doctor and another character. And um, I think once you're into the swing of the script and the momentum and the pace, then I think we're back pretty much, very, very, very close at least uh, to the, the, the feel of the TV series. I'm fascinated 
that you both had that experience. I thought I was the only one. Uh, and I, the way it manifested for me is I had to keep reminding myself I was listening to Christopher Eccleston and not Paul McGann. And, and I thought, is it because I just haven't heard Christopher Eccleston on, not that the, I know the accents are quite different from the North and what Paul McGann does, but there was something about the style, something about the tone that I had to remind myself this was a ninth doctor story, but but that diminished as it went on. By the third episode, I was I was fully into it. And so I thought it was just an artifact of, of maybe my listening and how we haven't mm. heard this doctor before. But so interesting. But I was thrilled to have the ninth doctor on audio. This, as you say, Ian, this has been a long time coming. And uh, I, I am so excited to hear more. Um, I do think that this was potentially a story that was a little trickier to get into, a very complex, complicated story um, that I think gets paid off uh, as you go along, but um, but not an easy one. No, 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 term. I agree. Yeah. And, I, and I think certainly in, in terms of the kind of story they've chosen to tell for the Ninth Doctor's first, first story, I, I, I think that's an interesting decision. Um, essentially, we've got three stories, that are one story, you know, I mean, because they're not really distinct episodes at all. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it emulates the format, I suppose, Briggs used for Dark Eyes and uh, perhaps off the back of Dark Eyes, you know, the first box set, which is essentially a single story over four four discs. Um, you know, it works really well. Uh, and I, I would, um, I'd start by saying that I don't think this story is one of the best. It almost doesn't matter because as as you've both said, the really good thing is is to hear Christopher Eccleston as the Doctor again, and and that kind of glow or that buzz um, is more important to me than a coherent story. Um, but I think on first listen, I I was so so excited to hear him as the Doctor that um, I I just I didn't really pay a terrific amount of attention to the plot until I completely lost track of it. Mm. Um, so I did have another listen. It works a lot better on, on second listen and, uh, and when I knew what was coming. And certainly the first two parts I followed plot-wise on the second occasion. I think um, that the, the big weakness is, is the way this story concludes and that's the hour-long story that forms part three which on, on both occasions I have become completely disenchanted with. I, I haven't followed the plot at all. Um, and that's it, mainly because I don't know why they've chosen to do this, but um, it's it's a non-linear story, uh, which has, I was going to say echoes of Riversong, but echoes isn't really the right word because it's, it's really loud. It's an obvious spin on the technique that Moffat uh, used to tell um, the the River Song story arc, uh, except this one is not as compelling or as original, and it's it's just quite hard to figure out what's going on. I thought it was a an odd choice to be the lead story for one of the most high profile releases Big Finish has done in years. This is probably the highest profile since they got um, David Tennant back in uh, years ago now. I don't think it's a bad story. I mean, I think the the big danger was that it would be a dud, and I think they've they've not. It's not a dud, and in fact, I enjoyed a lot of the parts of it. I thought the the, the supporting characters were very good, and I enjoyed the portrayals they were giving. I enjoyed the banter and the back and forth, and I enjoyed the scenes. 
Now, particularly in the first episode, where it's almost like a shell game of going through these different scenarios of, of each one linking into another. And you're thinking, this is quite interesting. And there's lots of this. In, it's almost a sci-fi trope of having these sort of disconnected parts and then they tie it together. But then when it started to get into, yeah, and what's the arc? What's the arc story? Yeah, it was very hard to really... And I think it's difficult to do this sort of story on audio because you know, I've, mm. I've seen some TV series do this kind of stuff and they throw in lots of visual cues to help you work out what's going on, you know, particular costumes or props or stuff to help you hang your attention and, oh, okay, we're here now. And in audio, it's very, very hard to do that. And it was, and, and the, unless the characters literally explain to you, oh, yes, you're in my past and I'm in your future, as indeed happened. Yeah, that in happened this. a lot, didn't it? It did happen yes. quite a bit. You know, it's very difficult to actually sell the concept to the audience. And I think there's probably a high concept in there that might just be slightly out of reach of, of an audio. But I, it didn't spoil my enjoyment because I, the bits I enjoyed, the fact that the overall didn't hang together, I wasn't quite so worried about. Yeah, I, I'd certainly agree. It didn't bother me to the point where I was extremely disappointed. And there's been some reviews online that have been extremely, um, well, let's say they've not been particularly positive. <laughs> uh, but but in terms of the concept, this isn't the most convoluted plot that Big Finish or even Nicholas Briggs has come up with. I don't know if either of you have heard Creatures of Beauty. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's quite an old story. Uh, it's a Peter mm-hmm. Davison story. But that is completely out of order. And uh, it, it's almost a little bit like uh, Memento, uh, where, where you, you watch the scenes unfold in reverse to, uh, <laughs> to an extent. And, and that should never have been possible on audio. And this is a little bit more straightforward than that. And I think um, if anyone has found their way uh, to Big Finish through this release um, and is a fan of the TV story, then the first thing they will think of has got to be Riversong. And uh, and perhaps there is a a degree of familiarity with that concept that might help them through the first two episodes. But where where as you say it all comes together at the end, um, and uh, certainly towards the latter part of the well, I was going to say a trilogy. It's not really a trilogy. It's in part three. That's where I started losing it. You had scenes that were next to each other that featured the same characters at different points in the timeline, and you're left to figure it out. And I'm not particularly certain, even as a you know, as a listener of Big Finish for over 20 years, I'm prepared to sit there with a, a, a pen and paper and actually draw some lines as to who he's where. Now, I did that for the first two episodes, and it really helped me understand who was where. But it got to the point where my pen was kind of like drawing spiders when we got to part three, and I gave hmm. up. Um, so, what? And I, fe- I have to say, I found just listening to all of these scenes... Once I'd lost the plot, it, it it was really difficult to get through. You know, I I had a sort of the opposite experience from you, James. I struggled more with the first two parts and just kept hoping that they would land it, land the story in the third part. And I I thought for the most part they did. I, I liked the third part best. Was able to to hang on to it a little bit better. So yeah, I mean it's just sort of the opposite experience of you. I do think that some of the some of the ways they wrapped up the plot, I'm not so sure about. One of the things they relied heavily on was that 
the sonic screwdriver was somehow picking up DNA of people that were <laughs> in, the, in the vicinity of the or doctor. Or had patted the TARDIS. There was a line there that said, oh, I've got your DNA because you patted the TARDIS. And that, obviously for a script that involves these many separate pieces in different time zones and different spaces, you had to have some scheme of allowing the doctor to get back and forth between them, but I'm not sure I completely bought them. And then at the end, uh, the, the, the Ravagers, the aliens, have both, you know, apparently are out to eat the galaxy or eat all of time and space, and they get... Uh, fear, the, the sensation of fear is very important to them. And, and the uh, the resolution addresses how they are going to have a constant supply of this fear to which they are addicted, but it never addresses how they're actually going to get fed. I mean, I, wouldn't they still get hungry while they're... <laughs> I, I, I didn't get that. I, I, I got the connection between the fear pheromones and the time eddies and the time particles that was all fueled by this piece of Gadafrayan tech, which the Doctor referred to as the node, of which there were two of, because mm. there was... <laughs> two, well, it's the same one. Time- exactly. Uh, for, <laughs> but it's, it's the same one from two different time periods. And all of that kind of linked together. And it, it's a similar kind of device that Briggs has used in the past. And again, in Dark Eyes, where if you think of the retro generator particles and how they um, they feature, they reacted with other bits of Gallifreyan tech. So it's a little bit of a retread of a theme, even though it's not immediately obvious. Um, the, the slightly more obvious thing is Nova, who we'll come on to in a second. Nova being, I suppose, the companion uh, for these uh, for these stories, referring to the TARDIS as TARDIS box, and uh, it was only done on one occasion, but it's it jumped out at me because, of course, Molly O'Sullivan called it a TARDIS box. And listeners, I can see Michelle, <laughs> and I've never seen a more blank look. <laughs> 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 you you have to get off your 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 concern with with the tardy box thing. I I, I don't I don't mind the tardy box. I just I'm, I'm more interested in the fact that we're seeing repetitions of storytelling, and um, you know that that happened elsewhere as well. I mean, there was a slight um, there was a slight reference to the time war, which I thought was really good without actually saying the time war. And again, this node that had just been floating in time and space. Uh, uh, clearly had um you know they said it should have been destroyed along with all of the other weapons of um of Gallifrey. you bring up a really good point there because this story they have chosen to set this series mm, in the time of the of the ninth doctor's history before he meets rose so this is theoretically the ninth doctor who is still very much traumatized by the time war um and that's another thing i mean it makes perfect sense given that you have a vast amount of stories that you can tell during that time. I'm not sure I sensed that either in the script or in the performance that this doctor was carrying that weight of angst. I, um, yeah, but maybe no. it'll maybe it'll come up in in future stories. I've I've it's, seen that mentioned online as well. Uh, and and the second time I listened to it, I I thought actually, no, I I, I think he's been written accurately and it, and it's um it's a very similar approach 
uh, taken by Russell T Davis in season one. And if if you recall, within the first couple of episodes of, of the 2005 series, you had the Doctor um, making silly dad jokes with decks of cards, dancing to Tainted Love in a you know dad dancing essentially, um, and and th- there's loads of light moments there. Um, and the re- the reason I think. I, I think it was those moments that were really powerful because they contrasted so well with those moments of, of real darkness and uh, and reflection. And I still think those those sentences and those lines made it into this script. And so I, I, I think those accusations... I think everyone seems to remember the Ninth Doctor as a dark, morose Doctor having just destroyed Gallifrey. And, and certainly that was... Is, it's accurate in terms of plot... But actually, he was quite a cheerful doctor as well. He had a lot of a lot of moments that were quite uh, quite light in tone. And and that's and that's fair. That's fair. Go ahead, Ian. You you've been watching all of the. the he, he definitely had the lighter moments. Equally, he was damaged, particularly at the beginning of the series on TV. He was damaged. In fact, at one point, you know, we talked earlier on about how the initial performance felt a touch stilted. I almost thought is this a post-regeneration character and he's actually doing some supreme acting that the the character of the Doctor is still finding himself. I'm not convinced by that. but And I did keep wondering whether, you know, for example, the the relationship with the character Nova, who seemed to be set up as a perfect candidate companion. And I thought, is there going to be something here of the Doctor trying for that and maybe bad things happening and, I don't know, feeding into that sort of post-traumatic thing? I mean, I, I I got sort of a sense that there was elements of that floating around the story, but none of it realised. Mm. You know, I saw, saw bits that made me think, are they going to do this? But then they didn't. Now, maybe in the future box sets they will, but certainly within they this will, one, yeah. I felt that it didn't really address any of those issues. And maybe, maybe it doesn't need to. But, you know, usually, I mean, very often Big Finish likes to hook into some of these sort of themes and expand upon the themes that are touched upon in the TV series. And I didn't think it really did that in this one. There was an interesting comment in the um, in the extras where Nicholas Briggs was talking about the script and, and talking about how the Doctor meets Nova and early in the story it appears that Nova is potentially destroyed, certainly whisked away by one of these time eddies, and that the Doctor is devastated by that. And I thought, well, I didn't get that. It never occurred to me. You know, he wasn't happy that she got whisked away, but I didn't hear devastation in in that scene at all. Um, so, any rate, maybe, maybe I think it'll come in more as as Chris Eccleston maybe catches gets his feet on I, the character yeah. again. Yeah, I, I I think Ian was right. I think it's hinted at. I I I don't think it's absent from the script. I think it's subtle. Um, uh, and I think it's in there, and it's not the thing that you really want to focus on in the Ninth Doctor's first story. I mean, you want to focus on the fact that he's back and everybody recognises him, not that he's back and he's got this deep, dark psychological trauma uh, that underpins his performance and dialogue. Uh, I think that can be hinted at in quite a subtle way, and I think well, and I I, think I did was. wonder about setting this in that whole time period. Because we won't get to that point where he meets Rose and is no. kind of restored. And so I wondered about what that meant for all the stories that would come. But I want to see all those stories that come. Well, we don't know. We don't know where these other box sets are going to be set in his timeline. And and, and I think, you know, the Ninth Doctor's trauma is laid bare in Dalek towards the end. And it's quite possible that future box sets will be set after Dalek. 
you know and so we'll have to wait and see what happens um in in terms of um story placements but uh, but whilst we're talking about nova i think initially the things that i noticed were the regular scenes that were absent so of course the first scene that she appears in is not the introduction meeting uh, it's the fact that the doctor has lost her and then we go back probably about 20 minutes into part one and witness the meeting which is you know a very low-key meeting uh, really um there's there's no real introduction to the TARDIS uh, which you would associate with uh, a new companion um, in fact she she enters the TARDIS 20 minutes and I time this 20 minutes into the second part uh, of the story to absolutely no surprise whatsoever so the 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 kind of um, mystery and the allure of the TARDIS is just kind of completely missed. And, and, and a brand new companion usually, you know, is, uh, is used to remind the audience that the TARDIS is bigger on the inside than the outside and it's a time machine and all it's wonderful. And that was completely absent from the entire script. Uh, but on the whole, I found her to be um, a very real character, a very believable character, quite low key. Um, I found, uh, you know, I'm sorry, she reminded me a little bit of Bill um, in, in, in as mm, much mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. how she spoke and how she um, related to the Doctor. Um, and I have questions about who came up with the name Nova. I assume that was Nicholas Briggs. And I've just seen Sharknado. And uh, there's a character in Sharknado called Nova. And um, <laughs> there's there's obviously, I, I gave Michelle, you may not know this, but there's a car, certainly manufactured, I think, in the UK, um, called a Vauxhall Nova. That TARDIS stuff wasn't totally absent from the script. It was put onto other characters. There were some other characters you go into the TARDIS and go, oh, so how does this fit and do that whole shtick? There was a reason why, I mean, you know, through the story, it became hinted that actually Nova, it, there was some suspicion that she knew, and that was more, several characters had that, that she knew more about the Doctor than perhaps was being let on. And eventually they tied it up at the end in, Honestly, a massive cheese fest. I, I thought that that wrapping up of why Nova took these things more in her stride and understood the concepts was really cheesy. I mean, almost fourth. What you're talking about the nerd, the nerd scene, and yeah. I've seen all 800 episodes of Professor X, and it's like, oh, really? Please. I mean, we're hammering no, on the fourth wall here in audio, which I didn't think was possible, and. No. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was also that one point that I didn't buy Eccleston's performance because he got really excited and he started shouting quite a bit. And I was thinking, no, this 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 doesn't sound like the Doctor. Uh, to it was me. a really weird indulgence to be talking directly to the fans and almost making fun <laughs> of the fans. And I'm thinking, why is this here? It it, it, it didn't make any sense to me at all. It, oh, you know. I didn't feel like it was making fun of the fans. I think it was basically telling the fans, "Here, here you are. We've 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 cast you, oh. fans, as 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 a companion." <laughs> Not sure that helps any. And, you know, it didn't it <clears throat> it didn't bother me. It, it was consistent with the character of the Doctor, wasn't it? I mean, if you think about the way that he treated Mickey. Um, in in towards the end of season, well, actually, no, not towards the end. Throughout all of season one. You know, Mickey the idiot, and all, all all it really did was say, "Oh, you're a nerd." It's the same kind of characterization. No, no, I totally disagree there, James, because I don't think he was talking down to her at all. I think he was delighted. He was thrilled. Well, I think he may well have been, but he's still using derogatory language. Nerds at the moment, I would suggest, is is not a compliment. Well, I think it's been reclaimed. No, it, 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 
Yeah, yeah it's been reclaimed. It's not J- James. Okay. <laughs> catch up, catch up. There's no- nothing wrong with being a nerd these days. Okay. No, I, I didn't take it as being a negative <laughs> thing either to Nova or necessary. To, I mean, I only said when making fun of the fans. I meant in a very sort of gentle way of, you know. Yeah. yeah. But it did. It, it felt uh, wall breaking to me that you know clearly Professor X eight hundred plus episodes is is a, is meant to be a stand-in for Doctor Who, and I just thought this is a very well, wasn't strange Professor thing X to do. the TV show in Remembrance of the Daleks when a Doctor and Ace, or at least Ace, is in. Mike's mum's house, house yeah. it is Professor X. So Professor X is established within Who history. Well, I, I thought that they are about to say the first episode of and then it cut away without ever stating it. Yeah, I, I maybe I've got the wrong story then, but Professor X is definitely being referred to. It's been an in-joke and it's, it's in a classic story somewhere. I should Google it now, but I'm not going to. <laughs> it's not that one in is it community that has a a riff on doctor who that's got a similar oh, goodness name. me i don't know this we're getting back to the real core of dwp you got three 40 plus fans or nerds as i'm allowed to say these days 50 not, plus. not remembering things very well no you speak for yourself <laughs> i am <laughs> children <laughs> Boys. So, yeah, I, I i didn't care for that i thought it was uh, dropped in and didn't flow with the rest of the story but you know I'm not going to go dying a ditch over it but I just didn't I thought it was out of place and didn't serve the story mm. why are you following me I'm not following you you are what makes you think I'm following you well you're walking behind me and you look shifty I'm not shifty like you're up to something I am up to something I'll give you that well go and be up to something somewhere else if you don't mind this is my route to work, so take a turning and toddle off. I can't. Why not? Because I really do have to go this way. Why is that shiny bit of tech making that noise? Well, if I told you, you'd say I was up to something. You've already admitted that. Yeah. How about I walk on ahead, then I won't be following you. But then I'll be following you. Are you just being awkward or what? You know, I think Nova will... will certainly be a suitable companion like like ian i thought she was being set up for getting killed or something at the end um which didn't happen and they'll go on traveling together so um the doc an interesting thread in the story is that the doctor promises her early on that that he will take her someplace nice, nice to live, to live. three times that, that's said three well times. and well and 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 she you know keeps Whenever things look really dire, she's like, "But you promised," and I, I thought that was an interesting, interesting thing hanging over the doctor. His need to make sure that he lived up to that promise. Um, I kind of that was an element I liked. Uh, yeah, Nick Briggs has got a couple of phrases that um, he he uses again and again in um, in stories. Uh, the Dalek Protocol, which is um, a, a recent Fourth Doctor story. I think he's got one particular character, which Briggs actually plays, saying what the hell at least half a dozen times throughout the play. And what the hell features in almost every single Nick Briggs script. Um, And he and I had a conversation uh, on Twitter at one point about this, where he'd, he'd written that for Romana. And I took exception to it and said there's no way that Romana would ever say what the hell. And uh, he, he kind of he didn't quite accept it, but he didn't argue with me either. Um, and I think, you know, within these three stories, you had 
various things that were repeated again and again and oh finding a nice place to live was one and then you had some of the ninth doctor kind of little mannerisms or verbal mannerisms you know sorta and again earlier on in the week I had a, a message uh, from Leeson and again all he'd done was just pointed out all of the verbal ticks uh, within the script so he just said you know Mr Briggs has reinvented fantastic or replaced fantastic for sorta um pretty much uh, was another one that was in there all the time as well so uh, it it it's interesting it's it's interesting to see how much those sayings uh, are, are littered throughout the script in order to create that sense of familiarity even if the diction and the other dialogue uh, from the character doesn't resonate instantly if you know what i mean so it, it it's all part of trying to recreate the era i'm sure well, the one one pet peeve I had, although I didn't have it till after, there is a point at which the doctor gets sucked back into the TARDIS after we think he's never going to get back to it. I can't even remember how. I think it had to do with the TARDIS key or something. But he has this short line or two speech about how he's backed in back in the TARDIS, sucked through time and space, and you know how great it is to be back in the TARDIS. And and in the context of the story, I have to admit it worked, and I went right with it. Uh, although I wasn't so sure about how he got sucked back into the TARDIS. But but then when we went into the extras, the very first thing on the extras is the clip. You know, the ninth doctor is back, and then you get yeah. to hear that clip. And I thought, doggone it, that speech was written specifically because it would make good clips for promos. Mm. Um, and that <laughs> knowing that lessened it for me. I mean, I I get that if you're a good writer, you're, you're going to do that. But I don't know, it seems so blatant after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> It, it is a bit of a shame that those things are quite easy to detect at times, particularly when they, they, they stand out as slightly different um, when you're listening to it, you know, for the first time. And I agree that speech was it did stand out. But uh, I, I found it interesting. You talked about the extras. I listened to, to, to some of it. I didn't listen to all of them before we um, we sat down to record. But I did hear the part where Briggs described the initial concept of, of being different parts of history colliding across time and space. And that was basically the concept of this story, which is essentially the war games. You know, you've you've just got different um, different legionaries, different battles, all pitted against each other, which is essentially what you've got here in the first episode where, you know, I think at one point you had, um, I think the Battle of Waterloo featured Russian tanks and Roman legionaries and um, Napoleon had stomach cramps, so had left the battlefield. So it, it was, it, it was quite interesting how the main driver or the main concept became so irrelevant to the plot as it turned out. I, I have to say, I, I thought this was an okay story. It was an okay release. I think the story could have been stronger. There's been plenty other scripts that Briggs has written, and indeed others now, that uh, that are stronger than this. But uh, but on the whole, um, I, I'd say it was still great to listen, certainly to the first two episodes. I, I will desperately try to finish listening to the third episode for a second time without my attention wandering. Uh, but I very much look forward to hearing the second box set when it's released, I think in the autumn, October, I think, later on this year. But uh, but overall, uh, you two enjoyed it? Yes. Um, I would say it's slightly above average. But I think that's because of the performances. I think all the characters were good. Audrey, Nova, the Doctor, everyone. I, I enjoyed all the performances. I thought the individual scenes were good. 
Yeah, the the arc story wasn't sweet. I think my biggest concern with this is this was a huge stepping on point for potential non-fans of Big Finish. And yeah. this was hard work. I mean, you said there was a more complex yeah. Peter Davison story, but you know, it's one thing to, to bury it somewhere in the main range over the hundreds of stories they've done there. This was a standout release that non-fans would be going into. And I think it was very hard work for a casual Who fan to say, oh yes, I want to listen to more Big Finish. Uh, now, I mean, maybe most of these people would have bought, you know, one of the big subscription packs and they'll get the rest of the box sets anyway, so it maybe won't matter so much. But I'm not sure it was a smart choice. But personally, I, I found I enjoyed it and uh, I, I was in no way disappointed by it. I think I agree with almost everything you said there, Ian, um, in, in, entirely. Uh, and, and Michelle, I'm getting the same kind of vibes from you as well. You know, it, it really is the same kind of vibe. Um, yeah. I loved hearing Christopher Eccleston on audio, and I can hardly wait to hear the next. I'm more excited about this than, than a lot of, lot of things. Um, Big Finish and Nicholas Briggs in particular, in my opinion, consistently do phenomenal work. And so I was a little surprised that, like you two, I think this is not not one of the best scripts, um, but it certainly it certainly had heart. It certainly had pace. Pace was a big thing in this. A lot of the dialogue and situations were were very entertaining and interesting and and well written. It was just an awfully ambitious mashup of <laughs> uh, of time uh, to to foist on the ninth Doctor for the first story. Hmm. So on the whole. Not quite fantastic, <laughs> but sort of. <laughs> yes. Well, James, uh, I understand from some of our earlier episodes that you and Phil had a conversation about building a scale TARDIS for <laughs> <laughs> for for Phil's son, which uh, is is quite the ambitious endeavor. Uh, yeah. Gee, I wish somebody had done that for me when I was a kid. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Uh, and I, I guess you have that on tape that we're going to get to hear now, yeah. or whatever we use nowadays on digital. Well, I'll, uh, I, I, yes, indeed. Uh, Phil and I had this conversation some time ago, although, uh, you know, I, I call it a conversation. I sit there and I listen to Phil. Uh, but um, yeah, as, as you say, Phil took on um, an extremely, in my view, ambitious project uh, that involved DIY, so tools, nails and things. Now, I don't do any of that kind of stuff at all. Um, and, and then I began to slowly realise that Phil was probably the nerdiest <laughs> fan on the DWP. Um, I've, I've, I've heard him speak about cosplay in the past extremely seriously. Um, and, and, and he took the same kind of approach to uh, the recreation of, uh, of a TARDIS for his son. And, and again, um, I mean, I say this in the conversation, but my goodness, he says it's for his son. I very much doubt it. Right, I, I, right, I can just right. see Phil kneeling. <laughs> I know it's the third. <laughs> It's um, it, it's a third scale, but uh, I, I reckon Phil uses this constantly. Yeah. 
So, Phil, you, you've been building time machines. Yes, I have. I have at the request of my um, eight-year-old son. Um, he's been allegedly listeners. Allegedly, allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's got gospel scouts on us, scouts on us. Um, yeah, as as I exclusively revealed on on uh, DWP episode three one nine uh, that my my son had been asking me to build him a TARDIS console to uh, in his bedroom, and he he wanted a full size one. Um, and as I think I mentioned on on that particular episode, there was actually no way I could do that without him either being trapped in his bedroom or not being able to get back into his bedroom um, afterwards. So um, I agreed to build like a, a scaled down um, console for him. Um, yeah, because I think, as I said on, on on the last episode, my son is a massive fan of, of the Hartnell um, TARDIS console. He absolutely adores it, actually. So... Um, so I thought, okay, I'll I'll build you one, but I thought I've got if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it properly. So I sort of tracked down some plans on um, on the internet, and there's plenty out there. There's, there's so many different TARDIS builds out there, but the thing is though, they're all full size TARDIS hmm. builds. Nobody does any scaled down ones. Well, can't you just divide so, it by three or something? It's exactly what I did. So yeah. I found the I found the plans and then scaled it down to one third um, scale. And I thought, okay, I. Did all my drawings calculate much? Um, so I'm, I'm building it out of wood. It's made out of um, sort of like basically the main panels. It's just like um, five mil plywood. That's all. That's all you really need. Um, so that that's the easy bit. The difficult bit, funnily enough, is getting all the controls because he <laughs> likes he likes all the. Now you can buy buttons and switches. Yeah, so you can put yeah. like lights and everything. How the, but when you're trying to find. Um, like dials, um, sort of like like voltmeter dials, but particularly from that era, it's very very difficult because they're all analog. Obviously, Bakelite made in the nineteen fifties. A lot of that stuff where they just sourced it all to put it together back in nineteen sixty three, which you cannot get your hands on anymore now. So hang on, let me just get this clear. Not only are you building a TARDIS, you're treating yeah. this as seriously as you treat cosplay. Yes, I am. Oh, talk yeah. about you! Don't like a challenge, didn't you? I My do. God. Yes, because yes. I, I just assumed that you were going to make him a TARDIS that would be instantly recognisable as a TARDIS. Yeah, but you've allowed your, let's say, <laughs> attention to detail to come to the fore here. Not yes. OCD. Attention to detail. Attention uh, to detail. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you, you're actually yeah. taking, um, you, you're building it from a guide. Um, that you you find online that actually replicates the stuff that was used on the show. Well, yeah, but I think all I've um, obviously I can't track down everything because it's one third scale. Um, of course, there's only yeah. there's only so much you can put onto each panel. So I, what I've tried to do is capture the feel of mm. Hartnell's console more more than anything else. But the other thing is, well, if you buy the full size dolls, it's going to take up the entire panel basically. So I've actually found ones that are actually sort of scaled down. I've, Amazon um, is uh, an, an eBay or an absolute sort of um, treasure trove for that for that kind of thing. Um, so I found some old, fa- a couple of old fashioned uh, sort of voltmeter ammeter dials that I can put on, that, and they they are scaled down perfectly. Amazing to, to, to the size. Um, so, so how how far through are you at the moment? Well, at the moment, I've I've built the uh, the frame for the for the for the panel, 
Um, I've cut all the, all the panels as well, um, marked out where all the controls are going to go. So when you say the panels, do you mean the hexagonal yeah. parts, like the actual part that you put your hands yes. on? Right, got yes. you. Okay. That's it, yeah. Um, then I've also, the most the part I've got complete more or less now is the uh, like the, the, the column that, it, that the console panels actually sits on. Mm. So... Um, so that that's almost done. Put a bit of beading on it. Um, I've just got to do a bit of sanding out and paint it now. That's it, really. So the real the real fun stuff now comes with the panel itself. Um, putting all, all six sides on, pre-drilling all the holes as well. So you don't want to <laughs> drill them once it's all there because it it'll probably just snap. Because I said it's plywood. Um, so on a, on a nice flat surface and clamp down so it can't move and everything as well. Um, so yeah, so I'm really looking forward to, to you know to doing that part. Um, wow! But the, the but the really difficult thing are levers. You cannot buy levers anywhere. So I'm, I'm having to I'm having to scratch build them. Actually, I'm having to scratch build them. So um, yeah, that that that's posed a bit of a challenge. Um, but it's actually sort of cutting bits out and then sandwiching them together. But they're making. Uh, a pivot point inside the housing so you can move the levers backwards and forwards. This, do you know well. what? When I so, said I wanted to chat with you about building a TARDIS, I had no idea it would be <laughs> this intricate. And uh, the, the amount of attention and care that you've clearly taken is, is phenomenal. I've um, All I can do is go, wow. Yeah, I think the, <laughs> the only thing I, I haven't managed to do really, because it, it's my, I don't trust my own um, skills when it comes to working with electric. So none of the switches will actually flick the lights on. So basically it's just um, like Christmas LED fairy lights. Right, that yeah. That will be pushing up from underneath the panel um, and they'll just be flicked on off and on from, from the actual battery box tucked up underneath. That's it really. Well, it's got to so. be better than plugging it into the mains and electrocuting the uh, user. I mean, that would be... <laughs> <laughs> I mean that would be a rather unfortunate. <laughs> it would be, yeah. But, but the, um, yeah. It, the, the, the I think the the one thing I haven't been able to scratch build myself has been the the actual time rotor. So it's scratch build. What does scratch build mean? Well, basically buying the parts and building it myself. Basically, right. basically what I've, I've scratch built everything else. I've taken just ordinary bits of wood and sort of created this hmm. frame and the panels and everything. But I had to approach a plastics um, company. Um, and I've had the, the 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 time rotor parts made to order, really. <laughs> so the, for the for the right sizes. So this is the um, big tubing. Uh, this is the big. This I mean, is the, the tube, cylindrical yeah. kind of transparent part that goes in the top of the TARDIS console. Yeah, so you got that, and then the bits in the middle as well. So um, they're all transparent. But I've got to. I'll be spraying the the actual sort of time rotor part itself um, with a, like a clear acrylic paint. And then fitting lights at the bottom of them, oh, so okay. um, so so it will light. So that would the time rotor. While it won't move, it will light up um, because I I did actually look into whether I could actually get the time rotor to move, um, and apparently you use a windscreen wiper motor to achieve that. You're just going to have to get him to bend down and bend up again, you know, and stand I up know, so exactly. he can simulate yeah. the kind of uh, the movement. I know, stuff. but he's um, he's he's so excited. Um, he's about, not the about, only one, is he, Phil? I mean, I can hear it in your voice. I, mean, I just want to get it done because I, I, I just want to say I can just stand back and say, yeah, I built that, I cracked it. That's well, the- I, I, I've, I've been incredibly impressed, as I said, just watching your progress and seeing various different parts of this TARDIS console come into 
being uh, from from nothing, and it, it it's clearly yeah. something you put a lot, well, a lot of time certainly, but a lot of thought yeah. into into planning. And I would say that your son is going to be one happy Doctor Who fan. And uh... well, I hope he is because I spent the, the last sort of few weekends outside sawing up bits of yeah. absolute freezing cold conditions. <laughs> what um, what what are you going to do for your daughter? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably, I'll probably have to breed her a unicorn or something. <laughs> I don't know. I'll just buy her a box of chocolates, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, well, thank you for spending the time talking to me about that. It's been fascinating. And um, I, I, are you happy for listeners to, to follow your progress? And if so, how, uh, do, they yes. do, that? how do they do that? Well, you can um, follow me on uh, on Twitter, I, uh, to be honest, or you can find me, my personal profile on Facebook, if you just search for me. On there, I'm doing regular updates um, to, to the TARDIS build um, album that I've got going. Um, so, um, but actually, I might actually just start sort of posting out to, to the DWP Facebook yeah, uh, group as well. Actually, I think yeah. Facebook group, or indeed, you know, um, if I notice them when you tweet them, then I'll retweet them from the DWP account, or you can post them directly from there, Phil. I think that would be yes. Great. Just just yes. need to develop a hashtag, and and you're done. That's it, exactly. Or I say, if you if you if you do follow me on Twitter, it's at Phil Cannon Six. Um, you'll find my updates uh, appearing on there as well. Brilliant. So there we are. So that was indeed an extremely nerdy endeavour from a, a true fan. Um, and to, to help people visualize exactly what's gone on here, um, Phil has actually done a video on his own podcast, the, the Who's He podcast of this build. Uh, and we'll put links to that on the DWP Facebook page. So to go visit the Facebook page and there'll be a link to, to Phil's video. And we'll see if we can get a couple of pictures up there as well. So you can see this in all its third scale glory. Brilliant. Uh, and I shall also try and include a link in the show notes. So uh, finding that uh, that podcast shouldn't be too difficult. And, and whilst we're talking about other podcasts that DWP hosts dabble in when they don't record with us, uh, I wanted to mention episode 52 of the Who and Company podcast, which is Drew and Brent's baby. And um, I, I, I listened to their show um quite a bit actually because it, it's got a totally different tone uh, to the DWP and even though Brent and Drew are very familiar to the three of us they, 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 they've got a completely different uh, tone and feel uh, in, in, in Who and Company and, and they've come up with an absolutely brilliant idea uh, in episode 52 uh, where they start talking about their favourite films or some of their favourite films. Now to say that their choices are eclectic would be an understatement. Um, uh, I've only heard of about two of them. Ian, I know you like slightly more obscure films than I do, uh, so you may have heard of them. But um, Drew dropped uh, the fact that he liked The Thing, or The Thing is one of the best... Um, yes, one of the best films ever made, yes. I, and again, I, I, I told him, obviously... I was listening to it, so he didn't hear me. But that's one that I've fallen asleep to yes, when I did. M- gone much to, watch to my it with shame you. and yours. I know. I was. I. I think I was drunk, but uh, I. I don't quite remember. It, it was a say. dreadful remember... print of the film. I mean, a really <laughs> dreadful print <laughs> did, of the film. Didn't you complain did, about yes. it afterwards? I did. Oh, yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. And I was. Um, I was awake um, at the end of the film, and I was awake at the beginning of film, and I'm. I, I, I didn't really 
will see any reason to stay conscious for the middle part but um the, the reason why i'm mentioning this is because as they go through each of their choices they compare it thematically to a doctor who episode mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's brilliant it's it's really good uh, and i found out quite a bit about um uh, particularly drew's fandom that uh, that i didn't know some new stuff and, and that will be informing uh, the dwp schedule going forward so do check that out too that's who and company all spelled out in full dot lisbon dot com and episode 52 is the one uh, you want to check out and at the end of that also there's a conversation with eric malinsky uh, about season 12 uh, so you can hear someone else who's not necessarily a real fan of Doctor Who but is very involved in um, the industry and acting talk about Jodie Whittaker's last two seasons and one final thing that I will mention uh, about Who and Company um, it's become very very clear that our American contingent uh, or the, the American contingent from the DWP have got one thing in common and that's music both Drew and Stephen have DJed in the past Brent has got a deep knowledge about music um, that comes out in all manner of different ways uh, when he talks about film soundtracks and so on. So we've got some really cool nerds. And Michelle, you play the cello. Uh, Yeah, what was that about really cool nerds? Does that imply (laughs) that the cello is not super cool? (laughs) I I, I am a mediocre cello player. (laughs) I think it's cool. Anyway, I, I think that's quite enough about other people who are not on this podcast for the time being um we hope you've enjoyed spending the time um listening to us talk about christopher eccleston's return to doctor who and indeed phil talking about his experiences building his tardis uh, if you'd like to contribute to the conversation then feel free to get in contact with us feedback at the doctor who podcast.com is the email address you need Or you can come to our Facebook page where the conversation will continue with other fans. Come and tell us what you think. Okay, or you can find us on Twitter at the DR Who Podcast. Is that it? It is Okay. Well done, Michelle. Brilliant. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, listeners. And we'll be back with episode... What's the next episode? 323 at the end of June. Bye for now, everybody. Goodbye. Bye-bye. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Take care.